0: District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Happy Monday. Welcome to another installment of District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. Today's episode is largely going to be focused on solar energy and an investigation into one of the largest planned solar facilities in the eastern united states specifically here in virginia in charlotte county i'm speaking with real clear investigations reporter john morawski to talk about his new article solar's lofty ambitions are consuming ever large expanses of land down below john reports on the intersection of culture and ideas for real clear investigations he previously covered artificial intelligence for the Wall Street Journal and spent 15 years as a reporter for the News and Observer out of Raleigh, North Carolina, writing about healthcare, energy and business. At RealClear, Murawski reports on how esoteric academic theories on race and gender have been shaping many areas of public life, from K-12 school curricula to workplace policies to the practice of medicine. But specifically for our conversation, he is going to go into depth about his investigations into the large amount of farmland that's going to be required to meet solar energy's requirements, vast tracts of lands, hundreds if not thousands of acres of useful farmland here in Virginia. John is going to break down his findings, discuss the shortcomings of solar, and why environmentalists are not more curious to discuss this. So dive in with us today for this week. This is our lone episode for the week. And let's learn more about solar and some of these projects that are going to be potentially explored. Today, we're going to largely focus on solar farms, largely leaning off of one investigation by our guest today, John Morofsky of Real Clear Investigations. And he really has dived deep into some projects that are panning out here in Virginia and that could possibly expand across the nation. So, John, thank you so much for joining District of Conservation.
1: Thanks very much for having me on.
0: Could you give a little bit of your background before we go into your really interesting report on the expansion of solar farms across the United States?
1: Yeah, you mean just my professional background? Yes, please. Um, Yeah, I'm just an old-fashioned newspaper reporter. I came up through – well, actually, initially I was a grad student in English literature, and I decided not to get a Ph.D., and I migrated into journalism, and I pretty much worked my way up through newspapers and – you know, like regional newspapers. And then um, in like February 2019, I took a buyout from the News and Observer, which is in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's a, it's a regional newspaper, it covers more than Raleigh. And I took a job as a contractor for a startup digital publication called WSJ Pro AI, which was a uh, digital newsletter run out of the Wall Street Journal. And I, I did that for six months, and then the contract ended, and then the newsletter folded. And um, that newsletter doesn't exist anymore. And then I came over to Real Clear Investigations where I had freelanced uh, before. So, you know, I'm pretty much just an old fashioned newspaper reporter who interviews people, looks at documents. uh, If I can get out, you know, talk to real people. um, And that's kind of what the article is like. It's uh, it's you know, I'm not an advocate for this cause or that cause or I'm not, you know, I try to be agnostic. It's kind of old fashioned 1980s, 1990s journalism where you try to cover all sides. You know, that's pretty much my background.
0: What led you to particularly what led you to particularly take an interest in this? Because I follow a lot of environmental and natural resources and climate reporters, and it seems like they have no appetite. They don't have an agnostic interest to learn more about these large scale projects. So what led you to take an interest in promptly write this article?
1: You know, one of the things that uh, Real Clear tries to do is uh, when there's stuff. There's usually something that's in the news um, that's getting a lot of attention. There are elements of it or dimensions of the story that are that are basically not reported or underreported or almost suppressed, because you know, as you probably know, mainstream media follows a kind of a script or a narrative. And so there's just a lot of stuff that's left out. And as it happens um, in this particular case, th- there's been almost no coverage of these large scale projects. Um, but in The New York Times, they had an op ed, uh, basically kind of an essay by a by an environmental uh, or con- conservation activist who also is a writer and had a, a piece about this project in Virginia, which I also feature in my article, and um, and it mentioned some of these reports that I cited and it just meant gave hints that this is a larger story. So I thought this is a piece of a puzzle that I can fill out with you know fill out the whole puzzle, try to figure out what the rest of the puzzle is, and so that is how I got tipped off to it by seeing actually which is rare but seeing an op-ed in the New York Times. Um, uh, it was it ran as an op-ed. I get it's almost like a magazine article. It, it was fairly interesting and it it had um it, it revealed some of the information that I have here, but I thought there's more to this and I want to dive in deeper and see the whole, you know, see the what what's the rest of this picture? What's the rest of the puzzle? So that was really my tip off to it. And um then I, you know, I do a Google search, I try to find other articles, and you'll typically find articles in local papers. Um, tiny little local papers or very re- regional papers writing shorter articles about a project that's approved or a project that's not approved or people coming to a you know, public meeting and objecting, but they don't put it in any broad context. So you have to piece it all together. It's like little fragments of information that you have to collect and try to piece together into a whole.
0: The articles so- entitled "Solar's Lofty Ambitions" are consuming ever larger expanses of land down below. And you chiefly focus on Charlotte County, Virginia, which is just due south of Farmville, Virginia. So that's about from Northern Virginia, three, three and a half hours, very rural area. What was your discovery when exploring this project? And the project that you focus in particular is slated to be the largest solar field or largest solar power facility east of the Mississippi, the prospective 800 megawatt Randolph solar project. But why did you take a particular interest in this one and, and kind of the implications that could stem from this because it's the largest proposed one? Um, what led you well, to
1: Well, One is – what I'm looking for is something that is um, – that's an example of – that illustrates a trend. And so this one would be the largest solar farm east of the Mississippi – Um, and of course there'll probably be a larger one eventually, but at this point, this one is slated to be the largest solar farm East of the Mississippi and Charlotte County is developing lots of other solar farms and there are other solar farms being developed in adjoining counties. And so Virginia, this is this area right here, this kind of rural area with available land, is seeing a lot of this development and this solar farm is sort of illustrative of that development. So I thought this was a good example. And because it's relatively nearby and I'm in North Carolina, I thought I could also give an example of what's happening in North Carolina as a kind of a contrast. So North Carolina – was the first state in the United States, in the Southeast, to introduce what is called the Renewable Energy Portfolio Standard, which requires electric utilities to u- to get some of their electricity from what was then called green energy, meaning solar or wind. Uh, and also, actually, um, uh, basically, methane gas is created by, uh, by uh, waste, some kind of waste, either uh, landfill waste or swine waste or other kinds of waste. So um so North Carolina was the first state to require utilities to use get to use uh, these renewable resources to create electricity but Virginia uh, leapfrogged North Carolina in the sense that a in 2020, Virginia passed a law required that basically set a net zero emissions, carbon emissions standard for their utility power grid. And North Carolina, that was like, I believe, in April of 2020. And in North Carolina, passed a similar law in October of 2021. So it's about a year and a half behind. So North Carolina is a year and a half behind Virginia. So I can say, here's what's happening in Virginia. North Carolina is sort of in the pipeline, but about a year and a half behind. And here's where North what North Carolina looks like in comparison. So North Carolina is um, just the the state uh, utilities regulators, the North Carolina Utilities Commission, is going through the process of. Uh, of taking this law and adopting um, details for the law, basically like a regular regulatory details for the law. And the utilities commission has to approve a final version by December 31st. So that's basically just a few weeks away. So, and there are no major projects that I know of that are proposed in North Carolina as of yet. But what's interesting about North Carolina is Duke energy, which is the dominant utility here, plans to uh, add something like 24 basically 24 gigawatts uh, of electricity, which is roughly 250 to 300 square miles of solar farms. And Duke has about 50 or 60 square miles of solar farms right now. So this would be five to six times as much. And they put it, they have a map that I found that they've created a map where they're going to put all this. And it's all around kind of the Eastern Carolinas, Eastern North Carolina and South Carolina. Um, and that that's where all the, Flat land is. That's where the cheapest land is. That's where the least developed land is. And th- 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 that's where you get, you know, the best. Like w- once you get into the central part of the state, you have a lot of development, and commercial and residential development. When the land becomes more expensive. Uh, and then when you get into western North Carolina, you get into the mountains, and so it's hard to put solar farms in the mountains because you, you can't have – if you have inclines that are too steep, which you have in the mountains, when the sun sets, it basically the, – there's no – there's actually blocks the sunshine. So North Carolina being uh, – there's only a section of the state where, where you can really build solar farms on this scale where you're talking about very large solar farms. And what I also found is that the Nature Conservancy, which supports solar development, put out a map showing uh, they have three colors on this map, red, yellow and green. And red is the least desirable for solar development uh, because it has the greatest amount of biodiversity. And it so happens that the red sections of the uh, of the uh, Nature Conservancy map pretty much overlap with the sections that Duke Energy created where they plan to put the solar farms. So I couldn't really. I I contacted both Duke Energy and the Nature Conservancy and said there seems to be a conflict on these maps uh, because the Nature Conservancy says these are the least desirable areas and Duke says these are the areas where they plan to put solar farms. So, can you explain to me, you know, what am I am I looking? Is is the conflict uh, am I misreading the map or is there a real true conflict and it'll be hard to cite solar farms here? And I really couldn't get a response. Like I basically was either no response. Or the person's unavailable, the person you would need to talk to would be unavailable, I'm sorry. So I take that to be kind of an evasive response. And, you know, my instinct as a journalist is when people start being evasive like that, there's something they don't want to tell me. And so, you know, now of course, you know we know that um, you know people can kind of plead their Fifth Amendment rights, and uh, they can plead the Fifth, and it doesn't—it's not self-incriminating. But in journalism, it looks suspicious when people can't give you a straight answer. And so, this this question, these questions will have to be answered at some point. If they can't answer them to me, at some point they will—they will—it'll they will, come to a head, and there will have to be an answer because either you will be able to build the solar farms there, or you will not. Now, probably you will be able to build some solar farms in those areas, but it's it, there'll be you know a lot of areas that are sensitive, and so that this question will be it will you know it will have to come to a head at some point, and I don't know when it'll be, but it's going to be in the next year or two um, that they'll have to start resolving these issues as they start proposing solar farms. So that'll be an interesting thing to watch, um, and we'll see if the you know if the journalists in um, North Carolina you know discover this issue, but if there are huge protests. If there are lawsuits, if there's a lot of noise and attention, um, you know, eventually it's going to be hard to ignore. The other thing I should mention is these solar projects are all handled pretty much around the country at the very local level. So these are local planning and zoning boards and local county commissions that issue permits for these solar farms. And so they tend to end up in local courts with local opposition and local support. And that's one reason I think that they don't make the news because we don't have a lot of journalism out there anymore. You know, newspapers are – the media empire, uh, landscape doesn't – it's not the same as it was f- 10, 15 years ago where you had a vibrant sort of functioning press. And, you know, the newspaper newspapers like um, the Charlotte Observer or the News and Observer, they're, they're gutted. They don't have the staff they used to have and they just can't – I mean, when I was at the News and Observer, we had three reporters covering healthcare. I was one of them at one point. Um, there were always several reporters covering um, the environment, and th- that no longer exists. So there just isn't the manpower or the woman power to focus attention and resources to spend. You know, time that's, you know, several weeks possibly to drive to these places to talk to people, to look at maps, to look at documents, to look at regulatory documents. It's very time consuming. You know, journalism is just a highly inefficient, labor intensive process. And so it's very time consuming. There just isn't, there aren't people to do it. And it's one reason it's not getting attention.
0: You mentioned the paradox of the fact of, you know combating climate change and global warming it's going to require using deforestation and essentially clearing lands and um, i don't know if you watch the show called yellowstone but they made a very interesting scene with um kevin costner's character who's a governor in the show and he confronted a policy advisor who said well to protect sage grouse you're going to have to uh you want to clear the the fields to have solar panels installed there. So it's, it's, it's very current and very interesting, but um, yeah, a lot of the environmentalists going off of your report, from what I read too, it seems like they don't want to answer for this. And you mentioned that they're very critical of fracking. They're very critical of pipelines and oil and gas development, but they're very radio silent here. Um, especially because only 2.8% of the U S electricity grid is currently solar. Um, and it, does require these kind of questions about what potential endangered species are going to be impacted by clearing these fields to accommodate solar goals in, in their mind, um, how many people may have to be displaced, uh, if it's going to encroach on different arrangements between, you know, let's say if it falls on uh, public lands and, and private landowners, what kind of conflicts it could create there. So it's it's very fascinating, like you said, that they don't want to answer this. Why do you think that is? Because this could have even a greater toll on the environment than Let's say uh, existing um, energy development projects. Why don't they want to answer for that? You think?
1: Well, I think w- one reason is that right now 2.8 percent of uh, electricity in the U.S. is created by solar power, um, and that's going to there. There are different there are, you know different projections as to how much solar power we're going to end up with, but it goes up as high as 45 percent, and that's the Department of Energy. That's not you know that's not some sort of solar energy PR. That's a U.S. Department of Energy projection. Uh, There are other projections that are like 22 percent. But in either case, it's the amount of solar power that we're going to have and the amount of land that will be needed is going to increase by anywhere from, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, uh, you know, up to 50, uh, up to actually 10 times as much. Right. So um, this issue is going to become impossible To ignore because it tends to be concentrated in areas where you have available land, access to transmission lines, and farmers and property owners willing to basically trade in, basically what I wrote in my article to to, to trade up from um, uh, soybeans to sunbeams, to from harvesting soybeans to harvesting sunbeams, and so there there, it tends to be concentrated in just a few areas. Now, the reason, you know, um, in the case of fracking, in the case of strip mining, in the case of all the other kinds of things that the um, environmental activists tend to oppose, there's there's a clear demarcation between oil and gas, you know, big oil, big gas, big corporations, and then the good guys developing the spotted owl. In this case, the industry is solar energy, and they've been aligned with the so- solar energy. Many of their of the people who donate to these organizations support solar energy, and so it puts it creates a conflict that has to be resolved. That's why it's a paradox. Um, these organizations can't be out there publicly denouncing solar energy because they've been supporting solar energy, and they still support solar energy as a clean. Uh, clean response to and a clean solution to, to climate change. So it's, it just puts them in a bind because it's something that they – it's a technology that they support and they believe will be – is provides, you know, a, a solution to climate change. Now, this issue has come up with um, with wind farms, for example. Wind farms, um, there are bird kills associated with wind turbines. And this this kind of – these kinds of paradoxes have arisen before – And they tend to be downplayed and muted because it's just um, you know they're trying to find a way to get around you know to they 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 serve you know you you always serve someone's interest you always have a um, you always answer to someone and 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 the and the sort of the donors that they answer to are donors who support these technologies and support the environment and generally those two things go hand in hand but but there are always trade-offs every technology every energy solution has uh benefits and but it also has trade-offs so one of the trade-offs of solar energy is that it's intermittent it only produces energy about 20 percent of the time and 80 percent of the time it's just sitting there idle usually at night or when it's cloudy and you know and also increasingly solar is going to take up a lot of land in concentrated areas so presumably they're, they're hoping that it can be solved you know they're 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 um favorite solution is to steer solar energy to what they call disturbed land and rooftops. Um, disturbed land is land that has been – it's not in a natural state. It's already been um, uh, plowed or bulldozed or paved over, and that would be ideal. But unfortunately – the best land, some of the best land for solar is not necessarily disturbed. It's either used for um, – agri- well, it's, I guess it's partially disturbed. It's used for agriculture, but it's still producing um, you know, producing vegetation. And vegetation is uh, – is whether it's in a forest, a form of trees or crops, it reduces the climate because it absorbs heat. And if you you create deforestation, if you if any kind of deforestation increases you know increases the client the heat of the planet because um, because it because it ceases to absorb heat and solar panels you know I don't really know what their relationship is to heat but at least some of these some of these lawsuits claim that solar panels reflect sunlight and actually increase heat in areas I don't know how true that is but this does come up in the lawsuits in some of these local lawsuits that that it actually actually heat the areas around them
0: and you reference a farmland trust american farmland trust study that said that expanding solar power could gobble up as much as 3900 square miles nationwide including on many um in many areas on the eastern coast in the U- eastern united states and you also reference that farmland could be lost at a percentage of 1.5% to 6% on undeveloped land for solar facilities. Talk more about that, about the large-scale gobbling of land that's going to be required to accommodate accommodate this before you go into some of the people you spoke to who are challenging these projects.
1: So, yeah, so the, the American Farmland Trust, there are several different kinds of predictions uh, there, uh, as to how much land will be taken up. So the American yeah, Farmland Trust predicts 3,900 miles of farmland there's another prediction. There's another study in my story um, that predicts that the amount of land taken will be somewhere between the size of Connecticut and Virginia. Connecticut is about 5,000 square miles. Uh, Virginia is 43,000 square miles. But they're not talking just about direct land impacts, but indirect land impacts. So they're talking about, you know, the entire sort of um, uh, Area where the solar farm exists, all the roads, uh, the uh, the transmission lines, you know, they're they they're counting, they're looking at the largest possible impact. Um, now, I should say that the solar uh, advocates, you know, are claim that they can, you know, that some of the solar farms are uh, you can grow, uh, for example, uh, pollinate it, it, it's you can grow pollinator plants. You can uh, foster kind of a pollinator environment, so you can grow things like little bushes and things that flower, and you get a lot of bees that will come out and you know take the uh, pollen and, you know, for honey. So uh, you, they also cr- try to create these. Uh, they, they try to have the there's a lot of you know there's there's growth around the solar farms, typically at like grasses, and they let sheep in there to graze. So so it looks very pastoral with the sheep grazing at the solar farm. Uh, And they try to give them, you know, a nice polish to make them look like they're environmentally friendly. So it's not like it's totally it's not like a paved over parking lot. However, uh, one point that needs to be made is the state of Virginia this year has adopted two policies out of concern about this rapid uh, build out of solar farms. One is that they're going to be now treating them, solar farms, as an impervious surface So a parking lot is an impervious surface um, and, you know, concrete and asphalt is an impervious surface. And they're treating the solar farms as an impervious surface. Now, if you go out to a solar farm, you can walk between the panels. There's space between them. Uh, You can, like, ride a bicycle, ride a motorcycle between them. There's, you know, it's not impervious like a parking lot, but they're treating them as an impervious surface for the purpose of uh, water uh, runoff, stormwater runoff. Because what happens is... It's it's the water is not just landing on land and on growth. What, there's there's no growth underneath, and the amount of vegetation is limited, and the effect is that a, there's a lot of stormwater runoff, and it's similar to an impervious surface. So they start treating them as an impervious surface, which means you have to build uh, collection ponds and catchment areas, and uh, that's 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 one effect that they have, um, that that they're concerned about. So. Um yeah, so that, that's one of the effects of having, uh, you know, large scale solar farms. You know, they used to be these solar farms. We should talk about the scale. Uh, you know, five, 10 years ago, a one megawatt solar farm was a big deal. I mean, that used to make the news. And then they went up to five megawatts. And that was a five megawatt solar farm was, you know, the, the the governor would show up with a big pair of scissors and they would cut a ribbon. And they would have all these people out in suits and ties. That's what a big deal it was. So this solar farm that I wrote about in Virginia is 800 megawatts, and um, that's just in Charlotte County, and Charlotte County has three other solar farms in the pipeline that collectively will be 537 megawatts. And Halifax County, which is the next county over, has approved like 700 megawatts of solar farms. Um, And they they could probably approve several hundred more megawatts, according to their county manager, county administrator. It's got like 13 miles of solar farms. And the county administrator told me they believe they could handle 20 square miles. So 13 miles is 700 megawatts. So, you know, 20 square miles would probably take, you know, be like 1,200, 1,100, 1,200 megawatts. So that's a huge amount of solar power compared to what we used to have before. Um, And there is a solar farm going up in Indiana that's like – they're over 1,000 megawatts. And there's one in California that's being built over 2,000 megawatts, uh, which would be uh, the largest solar farm in the world as of now. So this is the scale we're talking about. The issues that um, arise in California, they're built on deserts. And so uh, deserts are – You know, a desert is basically exposed uh, desert land. So, just covering up the desert by itself, just just the covering up of the desert itself, begins to create issues because the desert essentially just absorbs a lot of sunlight and there's not a lot of plant growth or vegetation out there so that creates different kinds of issues but the, but the one that they're building on in california it's all disturbed land that actually is depleted land it actually has lost its 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 viability it's um it's bioviability. You can't really grow on it, grow anything on it, because it's been depleted by basically by overgrowth. So, or I should say, overfarming. So there, so they found land there that is the kind of land that the environmental groups like, which has no other use. So that's an example where they were able to find a solution. But the question is, you know, how much of that land is available? It's, some of these solar farms will have to compete for land that is also viable for either. Uh, biodiversity, or for agriculture, or forestation, or, or or basically tree farming. You know, they're usually not cutting down pristine forests. So when they cut down trees, it's usually tree farms that they cut down.
0: Could you talk about the financial incentives that these salespeople from the solar industry offer? Sometimes they almost breach extortion levels and and kind of are very. Um, they may they're they're very convincing in their arguments, and then they're very angry when you start to question how much you're spending um, when you learn that the upfront costs are not as inexpensive um, as advertised. So could you explain kind of the way that they entice these farmers and landowners into getting into these arrangements and what those type of enticements look like?
1: Well, they offer so the value of your farmland is um, you know based on the value of your crops. And what they offer, they pay the farmers and property owners a lot more uh, for hosting solar farms than they would get for selling, for for leasing their land. Let's say say, uh, a farmer wants to lease. uh, You own property. You would lease the land. I mean you could farm it yourself, but you would typically lease the land to somebody who would come on your land and grow a crop and would pay you for the use of the land. And then they would sell the crop and make a profit. And so – let me just look what I said. I believe it was – I mean let me just check my article for the numbers so I don't misquote. But, yeah, so I talked to someone who was a large landowner in, um, uh, in Charlotte County. And he said he could lease the land for $35 to $40 an acre to a farmer who would grow soybeans. And he could lease it for up to $100 an acre to a farmer growing corn. And I saw an article about the uh, project in Indiana where it's about $200 to grow corn. And instead, the solar developers are paying these landowners between $800 and $1,000 per acre, with a 2% annual escalator for growing, for basically hosting solar farms. So it's, you know, it's 10 to 20 times as much money for the same land, and so it's really no contest uh, for these landowners. Apparently, some of the landowners turned down these offers, but. Um, in most cases, I think they would be happy to have the offer. They see it as a property right to use their property uh, as they see fit, as long as no one is harmed, and they believe that there there is no harm there. They believe la- la- largely what's happening there is jealousy and uh, envy, and people who don't get into the contract then turn against them out of envy. So that's how they how they see what's happening there. But it does cause some you know conflicts and bitterness in these communities. Um, for the county itself, so I talked to the county administrator in Charlotte County, Daniel Witt, and he said the Randolph Solar Project, which is the 800 megawatt project, will generate $310 million over 35 years in various forms of revenue. So it's property taxes, revenue sharing agreements, and things like that. And this is a huge amount of money for them, uh, more than they would ever see from the uh, just from regular farming. So for them, it's very attractive too, and you know, I'm not sure I would call it extortion. I mean, it's just the competition for funds, and it's an economic competition where the solar farms just win hands down, because they um, they just they, they they offer so much more money to these property owners, and they bring in so much more money for the counties. So, but it does change the character of the of these small counties when you know when you know uh, you know when you have like. You know when we talk about the available land, like Duke Energy, you know said that they will take up less than one point five percent of the prime farmland, but they will also, but uh, uh, of an entire state. But in in a particular county, it might end up. It's not going to be. It's going to be a much larger percentage in a small county, right? In some counties, it'll be zero percent, right? Like Fairfax County which is a highly urbanized county outside of Washington, D.C., there's not going to be large solar farms. So that's, you could pretty much say it's going to be 0%. But Charlotte County, Halifax County, places like that, the percentage will be much higher than the 1.5% because it will be concentrated there. I don't know how high it will be, um, but it's going to be high enough that people notice and it causes you know, it causes some concern, at least from some people. So, so that's how it looks. So they just offer a lot more money than you can get from conventional farming.
0: What I should have mentioned in terms of extortion, I'll, I'll clarify for listeners there. Yeah. Um, so there have been I, I've seen and read different reports in terms of how they kind of behave like vultures and they come in uh, when certain individuals get into these, let's say, contracts with let's say solar power for I think it's placing it largely on your roof. I haven't seen it yet, maybe on the the land development side when you're placing it on your on farmland. Uh, but anytime uh, people have kind of gotten buyer's remorse from investing in solar. Um, a lot of the salespeople come at them and threaten them and can't get them out of the arrangement. And they've had to go to local news stations to essentially get them out of the contract and paying all these ridiculous fees. um, Have you ever seen that kind of behavior kind of emanate in in your reporting on solar? Because I know for, like I said, for rooftop solar installations, there have been various reports in Arizona and other states where people want to get out of the contract because it's too expensive for maintenance. It's not as energy cost of saving or um, not as uh, cost savings for energy as it was touted to be. Um, But have have you observed that behavior with this type of solar development at all?
1: I have not observed what you're describing for these rural and agricultural projects. Um, But nevertheless, these uh, utilities and solar companies are basically accused of muscling their way into these areas And using their huge corporate heft and influence to outmaneuver, you know, far small landowners who aren't sophisticated, because you really need to have a lawyer to help you understand these contracts. So these kinds of accusations do arise. I don't know, I, you know, I don't know how valid, (coughs) excuse me, how valid they are, but they do arise because the situation becomes tense. So The particular example with – in Virginia with Dominion Energy is the solar – there was a solar developer, Sol UNESCO, that developed the the Randolph Solar Project. And then Sol UNESCO sold it to Duke Energy for an undisclosed price. And so Sol UNESCO basically uh, put under uh, option something like over 20,000 acres – of land. But it's only going to develop a small portion of that land. They're not going to develop all 20,000 acres. They're only going to develop a portion of that. But they needed to have the option to assemble the solar farm. And so what they what they did is, for those landowners who will not be part of the project, they have created a $3 million fund, and they will distribute that $3 million to the landowners who will not be part of the project. Now, there's, I talked to a person there who is opposed to the solar farms, and he sees that $3 million as a kind of basically hush money, corporate hush money being paid to um, the landowners who won't be part of the project so that they don't turn against it. Now, I'm not – I don't know how accurate that is, but I'm just offering that as an example of the kinds of suspicion – You know, that's, that's a level of suspicion that you see. When these projects come in, it doesn't mean that the I don't want to just imply that the accusation is true just because someone's making it. But what is true is that people do start making accusations like that and because they become just highly suspicious of these very large companies. These are small rural areas where, you know, generally there's a certain distrust of very sophisticated outsiders coming in with teams of lawyers, teams of accountants and teams of engineers that creates, you know, kind of a power imbalance and a certain level of suspicion. So they try, you know, the utilities hold town hall meetings and the solar developers will hold town hall meetings and they will hire local people to uh, to uh, represent them. So, for example, they have a local person there who is um, who who made all who basically signed the land deals of the landowner, someone they knew. It was a local person. It wasn't someone coming in from New York City. You know, with suspenders and flashy neckties and $800 shoes, they hired a local person to talk to the local landowners to sign the land deals so that it was, you know, so people felt more comfortable doing it. But nevertheless, you know, even with that, there's still this level of distrust and suspicion because the scales of the project, the scale of the project is so large and it changes the character of the land, um, especially for the people who are living right next to it. It's there. There's where you get the highest level of tension is the people who live right next door to it. So they are the ones who are, you know, they see their neighbors who are profiting from these projects. They themselves are not profiting, but they have to suffer all the consequences. We should talk about the, you know, the what the consequences would be. Uh, Solar project is a passive uh, technology. Right. So there really no people on site when it runs. You might see they might send a drone out there to make sure that, you know, that there aren't trees down, they might send a truck out there once in a while, but it's not like there are people working the site all, you know, during the day, there'll be 10 people assigned to that site, 10 full-time employees, but a lot of them are going to be working at a remote facility, looking at a screen. So, um, I just want to talk about just sort of the, the, so the consequences are largely from the, uh, construction. So, It's going to take an estimated five years to build the Randolph solar project. It'll have up to 350 workers on site at peak production, and they will receive up to 90 vehicle deliveries a day at peak production. And there's 13 existing access points to that site, and they have to add over 40 more access points to accommodate trucks and other vehicles. So it'll be a huge amount of truck traffic, traffic, and a huge amount of people in there working for over five years, and then at the end of that, it'll, be, it'll produce ten jobs, and it's a passive energy project, and there's revenue flowing to the landowners who are inside that little gated community or that you know that walled garden, where where all of that's taking place. So the people on the outside of that, you know, now the benefits to them could be indirect, like if the county gets the three hundred ten million dollars over thirty five years, right? There would be some benefits. They might have lower tax increases or parks or other things uh, that they would benefit from, but they're just looking at it from the point of view, is what does this mean to me living next door to this thing for the next five years? You know so they're looking at it from that point of view, and for them, it's a frustration. It could be a long-term benefit. I'm not saying there's no benefits. I mean, there are always pros and cons and trade-offs, but we're talking about the people who are frustrated by it, so that's how they see it. Does that yeah. make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Thank you for the clarification. And I was I'm glad I was able to uh, provide a correction on that or a clarification on that, rather. Um, No, you've been phenomenal explaining this, John. And I think you've probably maybe awakened some curiosity in some of my listeners. Maybe they see that some of these projects are coming to their neighborhoods. They have questions about kind of the entanglements, the amount of land that's going to be required. Where can people connect with you if they have potential tips? They want to read more of your reporting work. Where would you like to defer them to?
1: So at the end of my article, um, you will find my email address, um, and you can just email me from um, – it's jmurowski at realclearinvestigations.com. And I believe there's John Morowski at realclearinvestigations.com. But since most people are not going to know how to spell my name, which is M-U-R-A-W-S-K-I, the best thing to do is just find the Real Clear article about solar energy. You can Google it. It's actually up on the site right now. And then when you scroll to the bottom of the article, you'll see my name.
0: I'll include it in the show notes so everyone can click and follow and send tips your way. Thank you so much for coming on, John. I really appreciate it. I think this is going to be an interesting story to follow because of just the Biden administration's push to include this as part of their electricity generation um, in the transition to net zero and this kind of on sustainability that comes with it and the questions, the economics, the environmental concerns. So we really appreciate you coming on and explaining this. Um, and I think people will be interested in the topic, whether or not um, they support solar, big scale, small scale uh, there. So thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your report with us.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player we largely circulate on apple spotify and countless others but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push make sure you're subscribed there especially on apple if you like the podcast a lot go leave us some reviews we'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys moreover we are on facebook instagram and twitter and a little bit on youtube we don't populate there but connect with us on social media find me personally on social media with blue check marks super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.